so you pull in and stop. You park your bike. What are you going to do with your helmet? You're going to carry it inside with you to the store. You're going to leave it on the bike. You're going to lock it on the bike. Maybe hang it on your foot peg. Hang it on your mirror. Well, we're going to talk with Greg W. Fraser about what he does for hanging up his helmet. And he just came back from his sixth time around the world. We're also going to talk with David Huff about motorcycle jackets and protection. And when you go to buy a jacket, do you buy it for the ride or do you buy it for the crash? I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. Max BMW Motorcycles has been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories available online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free. maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. Best Rest Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. Whether you're on the road or off the road, you're going to want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system and will inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. It's the one we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. Made in the USA and comes with a lifetime warranty. And Motorcycle Consumer News Magazine just chose the Cycle Pump as the MCM top pick in their recent compressor comparison. www.cyclepump.com Hi, I'm Sam Manicum. Nick Sanders. Terry Borden. Sandy Borden. Jack Borden. Graham Field. Austin Vince. Jason Spafford. Lisa Murray. David Peterson. Rachel. Ed March. Glenn Hickstead. Dr. Gregory W. Fraser. Dave Barr. Michelle Lampier. Tiffany Coates. Herbert Schwartz. Brett Tart. Zoe Cannell. Nathan Millward. Graham Hoskins. Joe Rowe. Jeremy Craker. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Simon Pavey. Grant Johnson. Robert Wick. Seth Simon. Elizabeth Martin. Carol DeVell. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. Turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage using their unique strapping system. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. And that has gained them a top reputation for tough, reliable gear. www.greenchiliadv.com That's www.greenchiliadv.com The MotoBreeze chain oiler is powered by wind pressure that automatically adjusts for speed. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers oil to your chain with a felt pad that's mounted on your swing arm, which eliminates the problems of exposed nozzles near your sprockets. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets and forget about the messy spray oil. www.motobreeze.com. That's two eyes in there. www.motobreeze.com. So if you're like me and you found yourself standing there in front of a, an impressive rack of motorcycle jackets, all different shapes, models, sizes, and colors, and wondering, well, what's the difference? What's the difference from one to the other? What makes one an adventure motorcycle jacket and the other one a street jacket? Often you'll be told it's pockets or maybe it's the length of the jacket itself. But shouldn't we be concerned about what this jacket does for us if we end up coming off the motorcycle or maybe as far as weather protection? I mean, what are we really looking at when we're shopping for a jacket? And furthermore, are there any governing bodies that say this jacket will actually do this for you if you come off your motorcycle? Well, we're going to talk with David Huff about a lot of this coming up. Yeah, I'm David Huff. Um, I live in uh, Squim, Washington. 
Um, I've been a motorcyclist for 50 years, and I've ridden in various places in the world, and I have about a million miles of experience. And uh, this year, I hung it up. (laughs) David, welcome back to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you. What do you mean you hung it up? Well, I decided that age 80 was an appropriate time to stop motorcycling. Really? Is that it? I mean, you realize I do the backwards math and figure out how many years I have left. Well, okay, we're all individuals. You know, my experience is not necessarily your experience, you know. And if you take really good care of yourself, you could be motorcycling up into higher ages than me. So I know a guy who goes to the BC Beamers rally in the cusp. And what was it, last year, maybe the year before, um, he said, yeah, he was 89 years old. Now, he's riding um, an airhead sidecar rig to the rally, and he's been doing that. But here he is, 89 years old. He's nine years older than I am, and he's still riding, or maybe 10 or 11 by now. But uh, I decided for me that um, various physical and mental issues said, well, it's time to hang it up. You know, now, most of us would say about aging, well, I want to ride as long as I can, you know, and but there's no definition of I can you know, we don't have a common definition of what's the indication that it's time for you to hang it up. Yeah, and we have no you idea know? what's going to happen to our physical body personally as no, we get we older. No, we don't. Physical or mental. Yeah. I thought it was all going to be physical, that, you know, I lose my balance or whatever, hearing, sight. Um, but it turns out that our uh, our mental concepts change as well. And so our, our willingness to accept danger or discomfort uh, or whatever, uh, also affects the, the picture. You mentioned a, a few minutes ago that if we take care of ourselves, and that's sort of a good segue for us into what we're talking about today, because part of taking care of ourselves is making sure that we do the best we can to protect ourselves while we're riding from, from any sort of injury in the uh, event of a get-off, and, and hopefully we don't have that, but but that's what we're addressing for a lot of times. And we, and we often talk about ATGAT, and you've said before, you and I have talked about it before, and you've said that you're, you're pretty much an ATGAT person. Is that right? I've always been at GAT, and originally the idea of all the gear all the time was that, well, sooner or later you're going to come off and hit the ground, and it would be a good idea if you had something between your skin and the asphalt, you know. Um, then as years went by, I realized that, uh, that there was a new meaning for this to me, and at GAT meant wear uh, the appropriate gear for the for the ride that you're doing today, whatever that is. So. You know, let's say that you've decided that you're going to ride from the campground into town to, you know, resupply your liquids or something, and and it's 117 degrees. Are you going to put on your aerostitch, uh, you know, full uniform and insulation, you know, uh, or would that cause you to crash? You know, the fact that you're overheated cause you to crash. So I think you have to look at the situation you're riding into and say, okay, what is the appropriate gear to wear for that? So the, the opposite of that would be, so you're going to ride into town. Now it's snowing, it's sleeting, you know, it's below freezing. And, um, and you realize that it wouldn't take much exposure of skin to actually get frostbite. So you really ought to protect your skin with some sort of insulation. So we have a wide variety of environments that we're going to ride in. And I think it's appropriate to not be distracted. So, for instance, if you allow yourself to become hypothermic, it's a lot like being drunk. It feels kind of like being drunk. It, you know, uh, we we laugh giddily as we crash into the snowbank. 
know? Oh, wow, man, that was weird. (laughs) And um, so I think I mean, that that is, like, like that is, just to be clear so the listener knows, that is one of the signs of hypothermia is that there is a point, there is a stage you get to where quite often the victim will be taking their clothes off, thinking they're they're extremely hot and it'll be, you know, winter, very cold situation. Yeah, or uh, it does, the cooling of the blood to the brain does things that are not unlike what happens when alcohol hits the brain cells. Well, anyway, what I'm getting at is that you you need to be very smart about the environment into which you're riding. One of the reasons that I decided to give up motorcycling was because I'd been in some hot riding situations and my body wouldn't tolerate it anymore. I used to be able to handle, I'm, I can remember being out in 117 degrees and my my jacket pockets packed full of ice dripping water on my pants and, you know, and, and being okay. And then I had this ride in Oregon and, um, it was, oh, I don't know, 105 Fahrenheit. I don't know what that would be in Celsius, but hotter than you really want it to be. And I started to fade. I started to get, uh, uh, you know, heat cramps and I, I knew that I was getting trouble here. I got to a hotel, checked in, turned up the the air conditioner on high, cold, sat there with wet towels over myself to get my body core temperature back under control. It was either that or call 911, you know. Uh, And I realized, okay, what my body is telling me is that, that at my age, my body is not going to tolerate being overcooked anymore. And so, um, you know, riding around in the summertime is out. And that's hyperthermia, the body getting too warm, being unable to cool. Um, but let's just go back here. We started talking about ATGAT. And really, yeah. I think the premise for most people when you think of ATGAT is to wear gear because if you go off, you want that gear to protect you or at least do, give you some sort of protection from injury. But that's not what you're talking about here. You're talking about dressing for distraction. Yeah, what I'm getting at is that that as as I have learned more about uh, the physics, the dynamics of what happens in crashes, you know, I realized that the ability of our gear to protect us from severe injury is, is much more limited than we would think. And part of this comes from our misunderstanding of where the forces are and what they're doing. So if you are standing still in the road, minding your own business in the middle of the freeway and the Freightliner truck comes along and smashes you flat, you know, um, there will be a tremendous force from the outside pushing on your body. And that's kind of the way we think of crashing a motorcycle, but it's not. When you crash a motorcycle into something, the parts of our body are still moving and they have a lot of inertia. And so, for instance, uh, the most critical organ would might be our brain and our brain inside the skull wants to keep moving. And so if we stop this by hitting our head against something, we don't cushion the brain regardless of what we do. What happens is the brain keeps moving and it splats up against the inside of the skull and it self-destructs from its own energy. So when we, when we understand kind of the physics of the situation, we can understand why, why crash padding doesn't do what we think it should do. 
Well, as far as the, the jackets and pants that we wear, you know, you've got some armor in there and you've got your your outer layer. I guess it could be called armor too, but your outer fabric. So the, the outer fabric is going to, I would assume, be more about abrasion resistance and protection from the elements. The the armor itself, which is the, the foamy stuff or whatever we have inside the jackets, that's supposed to absorb and dissipate um, some of that energy in those critical points. In other words, the elbows, the shoulders, the knees, the hips. Yeah. Well, part of the trick in this is that that energy cannot be dissipated. One of the facts of nature is that you can't make energy go away. What you can do is you can change energy from one form to another. So you can change kinetic energy into heat energy, say, but you can't just make it go away. And this is one of the one of the romantic uh, you know concepts that we have of how how the pads are going to protect us from this force. So what happens is, think about this. Now you're sailing down the road and you come off the bike and your knee hits the ground. And you've got a nice pad there to protect it from abrasive injuries. So if it scrapes along the ground, it won't grind through to flesh. But consider that your spleen and your heart and your lungs and whatnot are inside the body. And the body is still moving at whatever speed you were going before you hit something. And so all of this stuff in your body wants to jam itself into the backside of the knee. The forces are not coming from the outside in. The forces are coming from the inside of your body, continuing to try to move. And so at a certain energy level, flesh just comes apart. So what happens in the studies they've made on, on things like uh, you know, impact pads, impact pads help with abrasion but they don't help avoid broken bones and that sort of thing. So we have this dream that if we just get on all this armor, we can come off and hit something and, and get up and walk away just like the racers. But the, the key is the racers survive because they slide. If the human body crashes into something at any kind of a speed and it's a sudden stop, you're toast. I'm sorry. I don't care whether you're a racer or a straight rider. Uh, so what you want to do is you want a low side. Think about this. So a racer going down the track, leans it hard over. He's got his knee out in a nice left turn, and the rear tire steps out. And he low sides and hits the ground. How far did he fall? Not far. No, he only falls about, you know, two feet, foot and a half. Yeah. So the key here is if he avoids abrasion. So the racer is wearing leathers that are three millimeters thick with with all kinds of abrasive pads on it, and uh, and it can slide for a long ways, and it won't grind through to skin and get up and walk away. But the street rider runs into things more typically. So the street rider in the United States, about half of crashes are collisions with other vehicles, and about half are single vehicle crashes where the motorcyclist runs into something. But overall, about 97% of motorcycle crashes in the U.S., or with the motorcyclist running into something else. So if we're being hit by another vehicle, then the forces come from the outside. But if we're running into something else, the forces are on the inside of the body. And so body parts don't take well to sudden deceleration. And that's the key to, to why crash padding is, doesn't work as well as we would like. There's no way that you can do something to the spleen or the liver or the lungs or the heart to prevent it from um, having kinetic energy. 
And this is really important because it, it changes your mindset of well, really how you ride, almost regardless of, of how you're dressed. I mean, you can go in and like you said, put on these, uh, these fantastic suits that you can buy now thinking that you've got this incredible coverage, but really... You don't. I mean, if you look at, um, I think most uh, work safety uh, organizations will say that the height of falling off of a stepladder is enough to break a major bone. Yes. <laughs> that's not yeah, very that, high. Be maybe six feet. Yeah. If you fall six feet, wow, that, that's about the same distance as if you went over the top of a pickup truck and hit the ground. So, I mean, a knee pad or a shoulder pad or, or any sort of pad is not going to do it at that rate. Well, we tend to not really understand about energy and forces. So, uh, you know, let's get back to, say, the crash protectiveness of a helmet. So in the U.S., at least, with the DOT standards, which has another long convoluted name like FMVSS 283 or something like that, um, the, uh, the helmets are tested and they they tell you how far you need to drop the helmet, but they don't tell you that impact speed, you know, has to be regulated. But what happens is if you put the helmet in the apparatus and you drop it onto the anvil, when at impact, it's doing about 12, 12 and a half miles per hour. Okay, so what would happen if they upped the test to 18 miles an hour? What would happen? I would assume most helmets would fail. No, there would be no helmets approved. You mm -hmm. couldn't approve it. So... So the test and the testing and the, you know, the helmet manufacturers are all, you know, following a scheme which is really kind of the Elfland thing. But, but you have to develop standards. You've got to say, okay, well, there's a point, like, let's, let's take, you know, a, and, and I don't think that a helmet is dropped on a, on a flat surface, it's dropped on a post, is it not? Yes, uh, it's a rounded anvil of various shapes. Right. So, I mean, they try and develop a standard by saying, okay, well, this is going to represent, you know, a certain amount of energy. I mean, I don't know how high in the sky it is. I'm not a scientist, but that's interesting that they at least have a standard for the helmets. But when we look at jackets and pants, there's no standards. Well, one of the issues here is that um, the Europeans have come up with standards. And so you have the, the uh, EU standards and um, then you have manufacturers in the United States, for instance, like Aerostitch, that says, well, we're not going to comply with those standards. And part of that is that the way that Aerostitch is manufacturing their gear, um, it, is, it would be extremely difficult and extremely costly to try and have the gear tested and prove that it does something. And in fact, there is no indication that Aerostitch gear is any less protective than EU gear. The other issues are that people don't understand this either, that the EU standards, there are a zillion standards. I, I used to list them all, but um, it goes on and on and on. So you have standards for boots and knee protection and, and jacket shoulders and, and helmets and, you know, and, and then helmet visors and then boot straps. And, then, you know. and so uh, for a manufacturer to try and comply with this is extremely expensive. So what they do is they figure out, well, we need to make it this way to comply with the standard. And then the attitude is, well, does that actually do anything? Nobody really has, has admitted that these standards don't really mean much. So Aerostitch, I think, is in the correct mode of saying, all right, it's not just a matter of whether your gear protects you from a force of so many you know, tons, but rather, can you get your gear repaired? And does it keep the water out? And does it keep you dry? And is it you know, is it, is it practical? So I like the idea that, say, Aerostitch 
builds a jacket and pants and they sell it to you and it's hopefully it's fitted to your size so the pads are in the right place and that sort of thing. And you go out and you wear this. And as time goes by, you say, you know what? My elbow abrasive pads are in the wrong place. They need to be a quarter inch higher. <laughs> so you, you send it back to, to Andy Goldfine and you say, look, I need to raise the pad. Say, okay, fine. It'll cost you 150 bucks. And they, they send it to the sewing station and they, they redo it and they seal it and they send it back to you. So you can have gear repaired. And so what happens is if you crash wearing AeroStitch gear, and you send the gear back for evaluation, man, is that a great test or what? Mm. You know, you're you're Andy Goldfine, and you want to know how do how do the knees on my Darien lightweight pants survive a crash? Well, you get ten of them back, and you look at them, and you say, "Wow, look, this one ripped, this one didn't," uh, you know. And so you get uh, real world testing, not not some sort of theoretical EU type of testing. You get real-world testing, and then if you want, you can modify your gear without having approval. You just say, you know, we need to double-stitch this seam, you know. So I, I like that. I like that approach of the manufacturer has the authority to make the gear the way he feels is good gear and satisfy his customers and not sit there trying to meet some, well, some elf-like standard. And that takes us back to what you're saying about the helmet standards when we're talking about dropping a helmet in a controlled environment on an anvil with a rounded tip. That, that's sort of a, like um, a disconnected, arbitrary test rather than looking at all the helmets that come back. But I mean, you know, some sort of protection is, is better than nothing. Well, the, what the helmet will do, for instance, and what riding gear will do is it'll protect you primarily from low speed impacts or higher speed abrasions. Um, Almost all the gear we have will protect us from abrasions, and that's good. But it, uh, because of the physical aspects, not because of anybody's fault in producing gear uh, or the design of the gear, but rather that um, the forces involved are not very kind to the human body. Let's go back to the jackets, pants, and standards for a minute. The you know we talked there are European standards, and I don't think they're all forced to comply even uh, for European manufacturers. I think it's um, if you want to comply, then you can put a tag on it. And, and incidentally, there's something with the tagging too that that can be somewhat um, uh, misleading with it. I read a, a bit of research there um, about testing the jackets, and I forget how many they tested, but it was basically almost all of the jackets failed, and the ones that passed weren't the most expensive jackets. So. The question here is, how do we know if the jacket we're buying is a really good jacket? I mean, you can't go by brand name, I, I wouldn't think, because, I mean, that's just a name. I mean, that's just marketing. How can you tell, looking at that jacket in North America, that that's a good jacket? That's going to give me the best protection for the money. In, in North America, of course, we consumers have learned some really strange habits, so um, I know people, for instance, who when they go to the grocery store will tell you that one food is better than another food. Well, how do you know this? Well, because it's a brand name. You know? And so advertising convinces us very – this isn't just an accident. You know, they go to great lengths to convince us uh, that Dole pineapple is better than brand X pineapple. And so we as motorcyclists fall into this too and – there are people who ride BMWs, say, and uh, they say, well, I'm only going to wear BMW gear because, after all, BMW wouldn't produce crummy gear. 
And then I know other people who say, man, my BMW jacket, the, the, the zipper fell out, the, st the stitches let go, uh, you know. So, again, I, uh, I think that uh, part of it is, well, part of it is that generally, yes, you do get what you pay for because it just takes money to build things better. So I think, um, I think this is probably a, a good place for consumer input where you can say, uh, you know, go to the rally and, and ask somebody the gear that where, whatever the gear is, go up to them and say, how do you like your gear? How long have you had it? How has it held up? If you had to buy it differently, what would you do? You know, I think here's an, here's an area where our fellow motorcyclists can really help us by by giving us clues based on their experience. And that gives us information on daily wear characteristics. In other words, is, is the jacket holding up? Does it do what it says that, that it's supposed to do? Does it keep you vented or does it keep you dry? But it doesn't tell us about abrasion protection uh, or the, you know, how absorbent, uh, how energy absorbent the, the protective pads are in it. That's the information that it just seems to be lost. And like I said, the, that research that we'd looked at um, showed that the most expensive jackets had failed many of the tests that they did, some of which are called burst tests, where they, that's the, um, the ripping of the seams to rip the seams yeah, open, yeah. What, what energy it takes. So how do you tell, like, as far as protection well, goes? Well, number one, I think you have fallen victim to the uh, the elf uh, religion here, you know, believing that there is such a thing as protective gear that if you just buy this gear and strap it on your arm, it'll protect your elbow against everything. Um, I think that um, uh, what I've learned over the last few years is that because we cannot cause energy to dissipate or go away, you know, we we can't just cause energy to stop. Um, that the whole idea of energy absorbent stuff is is a fiction. It's an elf tale. Uh, so what we can do is we can spread energy. We can change energy in different ways. For instance, if you have a, a pad which has to deform or delaminate in impact, the energy goes into the heat of delamination. And so some of the energy can be dissipated that way. But we can't just make energy go away. And the most important part of this is, remember what I said about where the energy is coming from. It's not in typical motorcycle crash fashion. The energy is not coming from the outside into the body. The energy is coming from the body parts inside the skin and the flesh and, and the bones, you know. And so because that's where the energy is going, the whole idea of padding. How, how, how can you possibly put something on the outside of the body to protect a body organ such as the heart from coming apart on its own? If you um, look at something as simple as maybe putting wood in your wood stove, you pick up the piece of wood and you put it in the wood stove. If you bang your hand on something, the weight of the, the wood is going to damage your hand, possibly even crush your hand, depending on what it is. Now, often you put on leather gloves. I'll wear leather gloves while I do mm -hmm. this. Now, I know that if the wood drops on my hand, yeah, the leather glove is not going to do anything. But for the everyday use, for like, you know, a high percentage, and I don't want to use percentage because I know you're so exact with these sorts of things, but <laughs> but, but if I, use, if I just say a high percentage of the injuries will be like slivers and small burns, those leather gloves are going to protect me. So they're going to do a lot in, in the real world situation. Yes, they're not going to do the catastrophic thing where that wood falls off the top of the, the wood pile onto my hand. They're not going to protect me for that. But they do have some real everyday use. Yeah, I would say bingo on that idea that, that what we want, again, to back up to my original premise that we want to dress for the ride, 
you know, not the crash. Um, since we can't do much about the crash, then let's dress to avoid the crash. So when you're putting the wood in the wood stove or you're, you know, putting your bike on the side stand or getting in gear at a stop or whatever, what you want to do is, you know, not injure yourself unnecessarily, even though it's a minor injury. If you, if you just drop your bike, you can, you can break your ankle, you know, so let's not do that. Now, and so what we want to do is pay attention to what you're doing so that when you're putting the wood in the wood stove, you're making sure that you have protected your skin from abrasive injuries or splinters. You know, a splinter could kill you if it's cedar. <laughs> Over time, yeah. <laughs> you know, but so we, we protect ourselves, and but not so much to protect ourselves from fatal injuries, but just to protect ourselves from common sense injuries so we can continue the ride. And this is really important, too, to understand what ATGAT really means. Because like we were talking about, I think when people think ATGAT, they think they're, they're totally protected, uh, you know, by wearing the gear. And you have to understand what it's for, like the, what that glove for the fireplace is for, and what its limitations are. Absolutely. And, and I think that uh, we, could, we could sit down and we probably have already, you know, listed those things that gear ought to do. For instance, uh, when you're riding in the Northwest, it's pretty important to have gear that doesn't allow water to suddenly penetrate to your skin and, and cool you down. Uh, it's good to have wind protection so that if you're wearing something over your eyes to keep the bugs out, that's good. You know, and it's it's not so much that we want to, to uh, prevent absolute injury from the body, but rather that we need the ride to be comfortable so that we don't make mistakes. We don't get distracted by something. You know, for instance, let's consider earplugs. Um, I don't know whether you wear plugs, but you should be. I do. Because wind noise is a very, very loud, low frequency noise, and we tend to not hear it. We, we tend to just, the, the brain learns to ignore it. You know, don't listen to that, don't listen to that, don't listen to that. And so um, wind noise will cause fatigue. It'll increase your fatigue. It'll increase your reaction time. And so if you are bothered by, you know, we're all bothered by wind noise, but what I'm saying is if you don't protect yourself from it, by the end of an eight-hour ride, you don't realize that this has caused fatigue and you're slower in your reaction times and your, your risk then of a crash goes up. Not to mention damage to your eardrums. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm saying it's separate from the idea that yeah. eventually you'll destroy your hearing, but... but um, and, and I've had that exact thing. I, I had a, a bike with a, a visor on it that would blow the wind across my helmet a certain way. The helmet was a certain type. But in any case, the combination of the two vibrated the helmet very slightly at certain speeds. And I found it annoying. But what I realized after riding for long periods of time was it actually wore me out. I found it, I found it fatiguing. I, it, I felt drained from, from I guess, well, just dealing with it. Absolutely. I mean, there are all these little distractions cause you to be fatigued. And a lot of the crashes that occur, let's say a group ride, let's say three guys head out and you're going to ride from, you know, Nanaimo down to Port Angeles and, and then on down to Portland and so forth. And and by six o'clock, they're just entering Portland traffic. Oh, man, they're fatigued. They, they've gone through traffic and ferry traffic and, you know, border security and customs and, uh, you know, and their brains are fatigued. And so... In a situation like that, that's typically where the crash occurs, where one motorcyclist runs into another. So I didn't realize you were going to stop. Yeah, well, I was. <laughs> mm -hmm. Crash. And so um, 
fatigue does lead to crashes. And so what we want to do is, again, if you want to protect yourself is, one of the ways is to protect yourself from those things that cause fatigue when you know what they are. So it pays us to be pretty smart about, um, you know, what is actually happening and what can we actually do to change that scenario. So when we're looking at gear, we're thinking, prob- uh, I guess, first about um, distraction. We're, we're talking about, we're talking about that, that gear should keep us comfortable, protected from the elements, uh, well-ventilated or, or kept warm, whatever your environment dictates that you need. And then the second one would be to give you some level of protection from those minor uh, everyday occurrences that could happen, the small get-off that you have, um, et cetera, et cetera. That's the two things that we should be looking at when we're shopping for gear. Yeah, I, I think so. I, I'm not saying that we shouldn't wear gear for its abrasion protection. I'm saying is that's sort of the, the little extra that we get out of it. But what's most important is to not have the crash in the first place. And so if we can wear gear, again, back to my premise that wear gear for the ride, um, you know, and if, if that helps you for the crash too, that's fine. But wear gear for the ride to hopefully avoid the crash. And so that's my current philosophy is uh, gear should protect you from the crash in the first place by helping you to avoid distractions. Great to talk to you, David. Thank you very much. Well, that gets us started on a conversation about gear, but uh, um, it's a huge subject, and I'm glad that you're uh, dealing with it. Uh, thanks for inviting me along for the ride here. I've been speaking with David L. Hoff, retired motorcycle journalist in the United States, probably best known for his book, Proficient Motorcycling. If you haven't read it, you definitely should. That link will be in our show notes. take a minute and thank a couple of sponsors that have helped bring this episode to you this week. And one of them is Overland Expo, which is coming up September 29th. Um, Overland Expo is a huge event for all overlanders, including us motorcyclists, a massive amount of stuff specifically for motorcycles there. You got to get your tickets online. So drop by their website and get your tickets in advance. They don't sell them at the door. I think that's really important to understand before you head off there. They have a ton of things planned for you um, over the weekend that you're going to be there. There's classes, for instance, if you're interested. Well, actually, I mean, I think it's for everybody, really. You don't have to be an overlander, um, like for long distance riding. You can, you can be into short, doing short rides from your home, but they're going to have people that are pros, that have done the trips, that have learned through the School of Hard Knocks, um, others that are professionally certified to teach you things like packing and planning and, and riding techniques. I mean, there's just loads of things there to do and to participate in. 
surely you're going to come out learning sort of a lifetime of things over a short period of time. One of the other things they've got is the centralized Moto Village, which is the uh, just for adventure motorcycles. It's um, sort of at the middle of the Overland Expo East, and it's going to have riding gear, apparel, luggage, all those sorts of things from companies like Eurosport, Asheville, um, bringing BMWs and more, Euro Motorcycles, Moscow Moto, Green Chili Adventure Gear, and just the list goes on. They've got the Ride the Africa Road Challenge Course, where they've got a team of experts um, that have created a curriculum based on real-world obstacles. They have these in-house training classes they do on Friday and Saturday, and then come Sunday, they have a skills challenge where you put what you've learned to the test. They've got a motorcycle expedition skills area where classes on everything from proper packing to border crossings. So whether you're you know around the world tripper or whether you just want to do something close to home, there's so much to learn from loads of great instructors who are going to share their experience and wisdom, often learned through the School of Hard Knocks, which, I mean, that's, that's a steep learning curve. And you can avoid that by learning from the people who have, who have already done it. Oh, and by the way, don't forget, when you buy your ticket, you got to buy your ticket online. Don't forget, the one-day tickets are 15 bucks, and, and the weekend passes for all three days and camping start at 175 bucks. Now, that's special deals just for us motorcyclists. As a matter of fact, if you go to their website, www.overlandexpo.com forward slash moto, you'll see the special deal. They've got uh, something that's sponsored by ADV Moto Magazine. It's a $45 add-on. gets you an exclusive dinner, the chance to win some prizes, guided tours. Um, there's a lot there packed in. And Sam Manicom is going to be there as well. So you can make it a chance to meet Sam September 29th to October 1st, 2017 at the Biltmore Estate, which is supposed to be amazing in Asheville, North Carolina, United States. Drop by their website, www.overlandexpo.com. And of course, anytime you're there or dealing with them, just pop them the word that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio so they know it works for them. Now, the other one is IMS Products. IMS has been in business since 1976, and for good reason. They produce amazing products. I know I'm standing on their pegs every time I ride my bike now, and I absolutely love them. They have a whole line of pegs just for us adventure motorcyclists. You know, if you're in the market for foot pegs, I want you to seriously look at the IMS foot pegs and compare, because here's what you're looking at. You're looking at a peg that is designed by a company with quality in mind, uh, a company with a, a racing background, building sort of ultimate pegs. These pegs are built with all kinds of things built in, including things like their watershed design, which is is the peg is actually designed on the underside not to hold mud. That's pretty amazing stuff. They're guaranteed for life. They're made in the USA. They're made of high-quality products that are incredibly durable. Uh, there's so many pluses with them. Weigh that up against your other foot pegs that you're looking at and, and make a serious choice here. IMS foot pegs are incredible pegs. Like I said, I'm riding on them myself. Check them out. Incredibly durable. And um, the owners stand behind their foot pegs. www.imsproducts.com. And anytime you're dealing with them, make sure you drop in there. You heard them on Adventure Rider Radio. Dr. Greg W. Fraser is a prolific motorcycle author and writer. Um, He's been around for a long time, well-known in the industry. I think he's written 15 books at this point, and he's just returned from his sixth trip around the world. You kind of wonder... A guy who travels this much, where does he hang his hat or his helmet? That's sort of what we're going to talk about. I think he's pushing, I think, 70, somewhere around there. But don't tell him that I told you that. And um, don't look him up on social media because he doesn't seem to exist on social media. But he does come out. He does a lot of writing. And here he is. 
Ah, this is Dr. Gregory Frazier, and I'm an adventure traveler, but uh, more importantly, uh, I'm uh, the world's number one adventure sleeper. <laughs> Every now and then, I, uh, I'll wake up and conjure some words and peddle them to magazines or maybe into a book. I'm working on book number 15 right now. Dr. G, welcome back to Adventure Rider Radio. Nice to be back, Jim. Well, great to have you. And um, I understand you've just come back from, is this your sixth trip around the world? Correct. On July 2nd, I connected all the dots in Los Angeles at LAX and finished up the sixth trip around the world. Okay. So I think last time we talked, you were ta- you were telling me about this. You, you'd done part of it. You did, you did this piece in sections with somebody else, didn't you? Correct. And then uh, about four or three-fifths into the uh, the trip, uh, he got scared and uh, bunny hopped back to America. So you did the rest by yourself? Correct. Wow. But that's obviously not a real big deal because you're pretty used to that. Uh, given a preference, I would go alone. Why? I fall into that 63% uh, category of motorcyclists that travel alone, according to uh, Motorcycle Consumer News. I'm just better off out there uh, on my own than I am worried about the guy in front of me uh, or the guy behind me. Uh, And it also, as as one British guy uh, told me, uh, I'd met him in Africa, and he didn't even have a camera. Um, No, You know, he was uh, on like a DR 350 or maybe it was a 650 in a campground. I said, you don't even have a camera. He said, no, you know, I, I saved my money, uh, and sold everything. I really worked hard to make this a trip. Uh, and this is my trip. If I went with somebody else, it would be our trip. And uh, he wasn't egotistical about it, but, uh, philosophically, I could certainly appreciate the fact that when there's more than one of you, it becomes, uh, you know, a democracy. What are we going to where are we going to go today when we don't want to stay in this hotel or want to go out to dinner? And you find that you're, you're not mixing with the locals. You're, you're pretty much stuck with um, who you're traveling with. So I'm, I'm, uh, and my preference is to go alone, mix with the locals um, and worry about taking care of myself. So I guess since you're traveling alone, you would naturally have probably a new bike, I guess, run with a cell phone, GPS, some satellite communication, things like that. (laughs) <laughs> that, that's a dream <laughs> I wouldn't know what to do with a GPS first uh, TourTech lent me a BMW several years ago and it had a GPS stuck to the to the handlebars and when I brought the bike back to him I, I told Herbert uh, one of the owners of TourTech I said you know uh, this GPS is. I, I very carefully took it off and into the hotel room every night but I never figured out uh, how to get uh, it off of the screen mode that it was in he laughed and he said, Craig, that's just a sales property. Inside is empty. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so you've got a GPS with nothing in it and you're taking care that, that's too much. Just it just had a photo on the cover of uh, you know, like the the apps. Uh, and uh, I'm I'm so out of it. I'm such an analog guy that I you know, I push buttons, but it never moved, it never changed. So Anyway, I was careful with it because it wasn't mine and took it off every night and into the hotel room and put it back in in the morning. But you said you're, you're working on what, your 15th or did you say 16th book? 
Uh, 15 and 16. Um, 15 is uh, now beyond concept, and uh, number 16 is in negotiations. Is that on a typewriter? <laughs> uh, only when I have to address an envelope. I've still got an IBM Selectric that uh, I use for the envelopes, but no, I'm I'm a laptop guy. Uh, uh, the, the new books uh, and, and, and the... Uh, however, I back that up. I, I do use a pen and uh, notebooks to uh, record ideas, but eventually when I have to sit down and put together... Um, 1,500, 3,000 words in a chapter. It's, it's not on a laptop. What are you doing right now? I'm uh, sitting in my office in uh, Denver, Colorado, looking at a stack of bills that I need to pay before I get out of here uh, next week. Well, I would avoid that at all costs. Well, but I meant in general, are you recuperating from something? I'm uh, self-medicating a broken right leg. Uh, the motorcycle fell on my right leg uh, three weeks ago and uh, uh, cracked it above a, a brake that I'd had a number of years ago. So uh, I'm not uh, wheelchair bound. Uh, I had left over from when I broke that leg, uh, the cast that I had uh, bought and also the cane and, and some of the drugs that I used to uh, take care of that earlier break. So uh I'm uh, uh, hobbling, but uh, not uh, wheelchair bound. I'm on the motorcycles. I, uh, I, I fixed a, uh, a flat piece of wood uh, that I can attach to the bottom of my removable cast and uh, so I can use my uh, right brake uh, on my motorbike when I have to stop. But I'm very careful about how I get off now. I didn't realize they had you on medication that long after the break. Uh, you know, the medication consists of some liquid swill, uh, some uh, old, uh, well past their expired dates that say, uh, uh, do not, uh, take alcohol. And I found that if I, uh, moderate, uh, I can uh, sleep well, uh, I'm, I'm to the point now where I can actually roll over in the middle of the night. So I don't need it as much as I used to, but I'm still taking Advil every day, um, Part of that's just for old age, um, but part of it's for uh, start the day with a pain reliever. You uh, you said you dropped the bike on your leg. Was that a, like a car accident, you mean? Or? No, I didn't drop the bike on my leg. Uh, the bike fell on my leg. Oh, uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> there's a definite <laughs> difference here. <laughs> there's a definite difference. I got up onto a high rock where I couldn't put left or right leg down, and the photoshop I forgot that my right leg's knee is like a a wet piece of spaghetti and I put it down to uh, stop the thing from falling to the right side and uh, the bike fell on top of my leg. So fell sort of implies that it's not really your fault. <laughs> Whereas if you dropped it, it would have been your fault. Being where I was was my fault, you know, alone up on some nasty, we call them sex stones, some really ugly rocks. And I just happened to hit one the wrong way and uh, it was probably a, I, I can liken it to a football, and instead of hitting it on the center or the left side, which would have let me uh, go to the left side and dab, um, I hit it on the right side, and um, my bike fall down. Well, so you, I was going to say how long until you're back on the bike, but clearly you're already on the bike, which um, is way ahead of time. Well, I had to, I had to ride the bike out of where it was, and that was about 150 miles uh, back to my uh, my 
home base. Um, That's because you're traveling alone and didn't have your GPS or, or your satellite <laughs> communicator, rather. <laughs> I, I dug a deep hole and buried the GPS long before I got to where I was. Actually, I was up in the prior mountains of Montana looking for uh, part of the wild horse herd that's up there. And it's a section of road that's closed to the general public. Um, and I, uh, um, the, the motorbike that I was using, it's a 2009, uh, it was just uh, too heavy for where I was. I, I would have been much better off on my 250. Um, but where I fell down was about, oh, 20 miles from the nearest town, which didn't have a clinic. It had a gas station and a bar. Uh, I didn't stop in the bar and uh, I did stop in the gas station and then I had to go about a hundred miles to my home, uh, which uh, also doesn't have a clinic or um, EMTs or any of those civilized niceties. And I found myself that night uh, debating whether to cut the expensive arrow stitch combat touring boot off of my right leg or uh, find a way to ease my foot and, and broken leg out of it, which was done with uh, – uh, the finesse of a uh, 12 pack, uh, nine to uh, get it out of the boot, and then uh, three of the 12 to chase down some of that uh, expired um, medication that was in the bathroom cabinet that said, Do not take alcohol. Um, my neighbor said that uh, the sounds coming out of my house that evening were. Uh, similar to a coyote with its paw caught in a trap. I like the way they hear that, but they don't knock on the door. Nah, he'll be okay. <laughs> they, they know not to come over there when there's that kind of sound coming out of the house. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to let the EMTs at your boots because um, they, they just cut everything off. They love to cut stuff off. As a matter of fact, I think they, they really get off on cutting expensive clothing. Uh, you know, not your riding suit, and your boots, uh, your gloves. Yeah, if you can ease out of it uh, on your own, and they advise against it. But um, I'm a, I'm not a cheap motorcyclist, but I'm frugal. And when I buy expensive gear, I hate to see it tossed aside. Did you know it was broken while you were doing this? Uh, I knew that it was a seriously um, fucked. Um, I didn't, uh, didn't know how serious the break was, but eventually I had an x-ray done and I could see, uh, the fracture right above where I'd broken it before, where I'd broken it before it had knitted back together much thicker. So, uh, uh the feeble older bone just, uh, cracked above, uh, the former compound fracture. Well, what I want to talk about today was I, I remember spotting an article you did about helmets and, and what to do with them. And because it, just the, the other day I was, I was parking my bike there at the place I was going into shop. And I normally put my helmet on the handlebar, like over the, the mirror and leave it there. But I, I, for some reason, I just got a little worried about it. I thought, well, you know, maybe I'm pushing my luck here because most of the time um, that's what I do. I just set it there and leave it. Now, I'm not parking in, you know, like this. I'm just talking average daily riding here. I'm not parking in a, in a, a city center or something that is really developed or in some country that, you know, I don't belong to. But you did a piece on what to do with your helmets. Uh, uh, that was published uh, in Motorcycle Consumer News. Right. Motorcycle consumer. And what was it called? It was, it was called, um, hang, hide or hold, I think is what it was. Now that sounds right. Yeah. Hang, hide or hold. So, so what was the premise of this? 
Well, actually, it started with a, a guy that I was traveling with. Um, thought he was being really cool, and he uh, set his motorcycle helmet on the ground uh, below his uh, left rear uh, saddlebag while he went in to attend to some business. And um, I was uh, nearby, and uh, another tourist, uh, this was down in uh, Columbia, another tourist uh, walked over to me and said, you realize that the dog is just pissed on your mate's uh, motorcycle helmet there. Uh, are you going to do anything about it? And I said, well, no, he's one of those guys you can't teach anything or tell any, anything. Uh, he knows what he's doing. And by the time he gets back, uh, that urine will be dry. I had given him some tips on helmets. He, he had done uh, earlier, uh, what you had done is, is place his helmet on the mirror um, of the motorbike. And uh, if you want to break off a mirror, uh, that uh, helmet can do the job if it's heavy enough. Um, and usually when they break off, they'll break off uh, uh, not the mirror stem, but they'll break off the um, uh, clutch housing or uh, maybe even the brake housing. So uh, I told him because he he'd been putting his helmet on the mirror. I said, you know, we're down here in, in Columbia and this motorbike has never been imported. If that uh, clutch lever uh, housing uh, breaks, um, we're going to spend a couple of days around here because you can't weld it. Um, trying to get one sent in. Um, it's uh, better not to put it over the mirror. And uh, I'm. We went through some helmet discussions, and I, I'd remembered uh, another helmet adventure I'd had in um, Australia, coming out of the bar at night with a, a guy that I'd uh, ridden to town with. We were in the campground, and the the beer was about three miles away. We, we'd ridden in and had too much to drink and come out, and he, uh, he said, well, uh, mate, uh, they're pretty heavy on the, on the drink-drive laws here Uh well, let's leave the bikes and walk back to the campground. And I said, well, I'm game. I'll walk off what I've, uh, the four X I've got inside of me. And, uh, I said, uh, I'm, but I'm going to take my helmet. And he said, oh, this is a good town, mate. You can, you can leave it strapped on the motorbike and nobody will steal it. So next day when we went back, uh, into town to get our motorbikes, and when he put his helmet on, he, he looked at me kind of funny. He said, odd, it hasn't rained out here for years. Well, somebody, one of the good mates of his in the in the good town that we were in, had decided that when they came out of the bar, that his helmet would make an excellent excellent urinal, and uh, they'd filled it up in the spirit of Aussie outback adventure. <laughs> so that's the thing. I mean, it's a tough one, isn't it? Because you don't most times you don't want to carry your helmet in when you go in somewhere, because then you've got your well. I think as you described in this article, your your stinking dirty helmet um, that you're going to have to set on the counter. You don't particularly want to leave it on the bike unlocked unless you're really sure that that no one's going to bother it. So what to do? Uh, there, but, well, the option is to leave it on the bike. But uh, the the rule is, if you want your motorcycle helmet to fall off and go thunk, all you have to do is set it on your motorcycle. Um, the tip or the trick is to to run the chin strap through something that's affixed, like a uh, um, maybe your uh, your tie downs on the back. It's it's not a good idea to hang it upside down on the foot peg, 
my learning curve uh, included having done that myself only to find that when I went to uh, put the helmet on, uh, something that had been on the bottom of my boot uh, left on the street by a wandering dog uh, that had ended up on top of the foot peg had also uh, ended up on the inside of the chin strap as I uh, put the helmet on. I, I realized that that was a mistake hanging it upside down on the foot peg. That would definitely, but the thing with the mirror, now you're talking about it's going to break or possibly break the mirror just by sitting on it, you mean, or are you talking about if the bike falls over? Well, what else? The bike falls over. Of course, it's it's going to be subject to the thump. But uh, the weight of it on the on the mirror. Some of these mirror uh, mounting uh, points are just junk. They're soft. Um, and uh, yeah, you look at how your mirror is mounted. It's going to go through uh, often the uh, clutch base uh, mount to the handlebar or even the brake base. And that's where they break off is, is from the weight of the helmet. Yeah, and some people say that even just the um, the the crease that the helmet or that the mirror leaves into the liner starts to crush the foam on the inside, um, especially if you're hanging it there all the time. Which I I, I know I shouldn't. I, I really have to find another method. But but like you said, if you set it on your bike, it's guaranteed to fall down because I've done that as well. And you can set it there thinking I'm not moving my bike, and the next thing you know, five minutes later, you find yourself moving your bike for some unknown reason, and bang, the helmet's on the ground. Yeah, it's that it's that thunk sound that you turn around and look at, and everybody that's in the in the, <laughs> the restaurant uh, looks out at you and says, "Well, there's a guy that hasn't quite figured it out yet." What kind of helmet are you using? I use a Nolan. Um, I've been uh, uh, with their products uh, pretty much sold on them for about ten years. Uh, I use a N44 or an N104. I found them to be um, reasonably priced. Uh, I like their um, amenities um, for their full modular helmet, which is the uh, 104. Um, I like the fact that you take the liner out in three different pieces and wash it in the shower while you're taking a shower. Um, I also like the fact that I can put it, you know, flip up the, the modular and I can put it on without having to take my glasses off. I'm a guy that, that wears glasses. Um, so it's not like a, a full faced helmet that you've got to uh, take your glasses off, put the helmet on, then put your glasses back on. They've got uh, enough room and they've uh, engineered it well enough so that you can flip up that modular and if you lean your head back just right, you can slip it on over your head with the glasses still on. Sounds like a lot of work to have to take the the interior of the liner out of it and take it in the shower. Can't you just wash in the sink? Sure, you can wash it in the sink. <laughs> I'm an environmentally conscious, frugal guy. <laughs> it it actually comes out in, th- in three pieces. It's got the core, you know, the top, the core, and then the two uh, chin pads. Um, and I uh, I. I take it in the shower and I use my hair shampoo on and I shampoo my hair, I shampoo the, the helmet liner and it's uh, it's dry the next morning. And it smells much better than oh, one of my other helmets that I could never wash. Um, you know, I would take the whole helmet into the shower and it still came out stinky. Well, so 
to recap, the trick for the helmet then is to find a place to zip the chin strap through. I think you're going to come up with something like a, you know, put a carabiner on a short strap or something like that to make it a fast clip on something along those lines. But you're saying weave it through something and make sure that it's right side up. Correct. Um, upside down just invites, oh, strange objects uh, to be either placed in it or to land in it. Uh, well, I think it probably all depends where you're hanging out, too. I mean, some of the places you're hanging out, <laughs> you expect things like that. No, I come from a nice state of Montana, and uh, uh, I don't expect that. But I will go back about 40 years in my learning curve, and uh, I, I don't mind sharing this. I mean, my learning curve was pretty steep, and uh, I, I found that some cowboy had come out and used it for his platoon. So after six turns around the world, what do you do? Well, number one, I'm not going to make any more uh, trips around the world. Uh, it, it's really pretty easy now. With uh, it's, it's really just a function of time and money. How much time do you want to take and how much money do you want to spend? Um, so uh, I've done it six different ways. Uh, alone big loops uh, continuously and pieces. I had a passenger on the back once uh, who had Parkinson's and then uh, uh, I tried going with another guy. Um, so I, I don't see any options that are out there to do it any differently. My um, radar screen has, it, uh, has me and motorcycles going back to places I like. Um, I don't want to see... Um, Ah, the Middle East again, and I'm not interested in the stands. Um, I want I want good roads, uh, some degree of adventure, uh, you know, a little bit of risk. Uh, um, not not so much risk that I'm uh, putting myself out there on Interstate 405, even LAX headed to San Diego during rush hour on a Friday afternoon. Um, I prefer the the quiet and the solitude of the mountains and uh, uh, some of the, the places on the planet that I, I've really found were quite nice. They weren't um, um, the ugly ones that I've experienced uh, over the last 50 years. Hey, you know, that, that's a question I just want to throw at you before we, we wrap things up right now. Um, your job, how do you get a job like that? You fail at, at everything else. It's like the guy says in the song, I ain't much for digging holes or climbing poles, but I'm pretty good at drinking beer. Uh, I've learned that I'm pretty good at doing what I do, which is uh, uh, taking care of myself, being responsible, having a moral center um, in the, the, the niche that I function in, and uh, being able to recount it to, in, in different ways, whether it's through film or uh, the written word or like we are right now through the Internet. Dr. Greg Fraser, thank you very much. Jim, it's always fun, and I look forward to uh, hearing back if any of your audience uh, gets a chance. I was in Ecuador, and a guy ha had dinner with me, and he said, hey, I just listened to your podcast about packing. And I thought, what a small world it is. That was so, a long Jim, time ago, too. Yeah, it was, but uh, that tells me how, how small it is. Have fun out there and uh, keep the uh, humor flowing. That's what uh, keeps my, uh, my blood going.
I've been speaking with Dr. Gregory Fraser, and that's with a Z if you're looking him up. His latest books are Down and Out. The next one is Motorcycle Adventure, which I, I would recommend that you look at if you haven't heard of already. Uh, it's a story about a, a fellow named Carl Stearns Clancy, who was the first motorcyclist to ride around the world in 1912 and 1913. Anyways, books are available in all places. Books are sold, including Amazon, and there will be a link to that in our show notes. I just want to remind you that this episode was made possible for you today in part by Max BMW Motorcycles at www.maxbmw.com, Best Rest Products at www.cyclepump.com, Green Chili Adventure Gear at www.greenchiliadv.com, and Moto Breeze Chain Oilers, www.motobreeze.com. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and to you, of course, the listener. Thank you very much for listening. Don't forget to drop by our website. You can download all of our episodes for free, www.adventureriderradio.com. And you can also look at our Raw show, which is our separate show from this. You need to subscribe separately, all at that website. And if you go to the website and look at the show notes for each individual show, you'll often find some things in there that you, you wouldn't have heard on the show, maybe some photographs and things like that. So drop by, check out the show notes for each episode. You can also like us on Facebook. Just simply search for Adventure Rider Radio. If you like what we're doing and you want to help support, we get all kinds of incentive, anything $10 or more is going to get you a sticker sent back at you. Anything $50 or more will get you a mention on our Raw show. That's the other show I told you about if you don't know about it already. Anyway, drop by the website www.adventureriderradio.com and click on the support button. Thank you very much. My name is Jim Martin. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike. See you next week. Hi, I'm Carl Parker from Eddie Moto Magazine and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Hey!